Alistair Begg, who some of you probably are familiar with him, he's uh, a Bible teacher, pastor. He said this, he said, we're not free to tamper with the Bible. If you simply choose the parts of the Bible you like and reject the parts that you don't like, then you don't believe the Bible, you believe yourself. We're going to be looking at a section of the Bible today that we may be tempted to reject because we don't like what it says. But as Alistair Begg has rightly said, we're not free to pick and choose the parts of the Bible that we like and are willing to follow and those that we are not. By way of quick review, we began a Bible study through the letter of Romans last time. I made some introductory remarks about who wrote the letter, who the letter was originally written to, why the letter was written, and then gave a very brief overview of the content of the letter. Following that, we looked at the first 17 verses of the first chapter of the letter, which conclude with the very important truth found in verses 16 and 17, which contain really the big idea for the whole letter. The gospel is the power of God that brings salvation for everyone who believes. Rather than trusting in our own righteousness, trying to have a relationship with God by being a good person, and hoping that we can be good enough to get into heaven after this life, we trust in the righteousness God gives us through Jesus Christ. We put our faith in what Jesus Christ has done for us and keeps doing for us. It is a righteousness that is by faith. Well, today, people ask questions like, well, why do I need to be saved? What am I being saved from? Why do I need Jesus Christ? My life seems fine. It isn't perfect, but I'm managing to get along. I'm basically a good person. Why is a received righteousness from God the only way for me to be in right standing with God? Well, in the passage we'll be looking at today, Paul begins to address these kinds of questions. He will spend from Romans chapter 1, verse 18, through Romans chapter 3, verse 20, explaining why we need God to give us righteousness, why we can't earn, deserve, or attain salvation on our own. In a nutshell, Paul makes the case that no person is righteous, that we are all sinful and under the judgment of God, suffering the consequences of our sin, which we have brought upon ourselves. We are unable to save ourselves. We are utterly doomed without the gracious intervention of God on our behalf through Jesus Christ. Our own righteousness is inadequate to save us. For us to be saved, we need God to make us righteous. Now, a lot of that is not very pleasant for us to hear. It's important, though, that we hear what is said in this passage in the larger context of God's desire for us. His ultimate desire is our salvation, not our destruction. As the Lord said to his people through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. 
Keep that in mind as we look at this passage today. So Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so the people are without excuse. Verse 18 is the main sentence of this passage, which extends through verse 32. The rest of the passage expands, explains, and gives evidence for what is said here in verse 18. In verse 17, which we looked at last time, it says the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, the salvation through Jesus Christ. Now in the next verse, verse 18, it says the wrath of God is revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of people. So we have this tremendous contrast. The righteousness of God is being revealed, demonstrated, brought out through the gracious gift of His Son, giving His life for us to save us, giving us His righteousness through faith. And in contrast to that, there's the wrath of God being revealed against humanity's godlessness and wickedness. The wrath of people is often self-centered and vengeful. God's wrath is different. God's wrath is His righteous, just anger with sin. In our culture, we have been taught to think that God is only love and happiness. Wrath and anger are things that are never associated with God. In truth, that is a God of our own making to serve our own purposes, to make us feel good about ourselves and affirm us in the things that we're doing. In truth, the real God is not a one-dimensional human fabrication. He has something to say about how we are living our lives and treating each other. The wrath of God is being revealed against all of the godlessness and wickedness of people. We will learn as we get further into this passage that the way in which God's wrath is being revealed is by Him giving us over to the natural consequences resulting from our sin. This is in verse 24, verse 26, and in verse 28 He mentions this. God is allowing our sinful choices and behaviors to follow their natural courses in our lives. We human beings have chosen, so to speak, to knowingly drink poison. And rather than swooping in with an antidote to save us from what we have deliberately and rebelliously done, God is allowing us to experience the effects of that poison that we have drank. It's interesting to consider that God not intervening to protect us from the consequences of our sin is an expression of, an outworking of, a revealing of 
his wrath. People say they don't want God to be involved in their life. They want him to leave them alone and let them live their life on their own terms. Well, God doing that, leaving us alone, is a revealing of his wrath. Because without his gracious intervention, we are on a path of self-destruction, inflicting tremendous pain and suffering on ourselves and on one another. Spending a few minutes scanning through the daily news feed should be enough evidence to convince us of that. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The truth being suppressed about God is who God is and his will for us. All people throughout all of history are without excuse, it says here. They have no excuse. All of us have no excuse for rejecting God. No one can claim ignorance of not knowing of God's existence and that we are accountable to him. God has communicated with all of us in ways that we can all understand, no matter our culture, our education, our family history, our location in this world. God has used the universal language of the creation itself to communicate to all people everywhere about his presence and his nature, his eternal power and divine nature, as Paul writes here. Paul has anticipated the objection that some will raise that they didn't know any better. It isn't fair that God holds them accountable. Paul's response is, God has made himself known to all people, but we have suppressed the truth. We have pushed it away. We have ignored it. We have hidden it. We have chosen to look away from it. See, people may not know about Jesus Christ and how God makes salvation possible for us through him, but all people know there is a creator who we are accountable to. We must deliberately push down that sense of wonder and awe that erupts inside of us in response to the amazingness of the creation around us. Life itself can take our breath away with wonder if we will let it. Just standing outside and listening to the wind blowing through the trees is enough. Looking up into the night sky and seeing the moon and the stars is enough. It doesn't take much to see the Creator's hand if we are open. 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but through their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles." Even though God has made himself known, people have not worshipped him or given him thanks. 
The minimum response that all people owe to God is thanksgiving. He has given us life. It is a great insult for us to deny God's existence while at the same time breathing the air that He gave us with the lungs that He gave us in the body He gave us, thinking that with the conscious mind that He gave us. Instead of worshiping the one who is obviously God, human beings have chosen instead to worship things of their own imagining and making, images that look like what God has made, people and other creatures. They have rejected the true God and the revelation of himself that he's given to them and chosen to worship gods of their own making. They have become fools, Paul says, exchanging the glory of the real, immortal God for their imitations of things that he's made. It's as if we have chosen to be infatuated with a cheap little 3 by 5 postcard that we have made of a Rembrandt masterpiece while ignoring the great artist himself standing right next to us. Twenty-four, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual immorality for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. It says, therefore God gave them over. God's action in response to our rejection of Him has been to give us over. Gave them over. It's a repeated phrase that Paul uses in this passage we're looking at. We find it here in verse 24 and then again in verse 26 and then again in verse 28, emphasizing God's deliberate response to our rejection of Him. Robert Mounts writes, God's wrath mentioned in Romans 1 is not an active outpouring of divine displeasure, but the removal of restraint that allows sinners to reap the just fruits of their rebellion. Rather than stepping in and putting a stop to the madness God has allowed it to continue and for us to reap the consequences of it. In other words, He's giving us what we want. He's giving us what we want. This is how God's wrath is working out itself in the lives of people. He lets people damn themselves as they warp their own humanity. He's letting their own wickedness come back upon them by letting the consequences of their own choices and behaviors be their punishment. Oscar Wilde, he expressed a similar idea when he said, when the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. Someone has said, sin eventually creates its own penalty. And ironically, People blame God for what's wrong in the world and in their lives. 
but who's really to blame for the troubles that we're living with? We've done these things to ourselves. We're angry with God, though, for not stepping in and stopping us from doing it. We're such hypocrites. It says, he gave them over in the sinful desires, lusts, cravings of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading, dishonoring, humiliating, mistreating, devaluing of their bodies with one another. This is just one example of many that could have been given. There are some others that are actually listed in verses 29 through 31 below, which we will look at in a little bit, of how the unrestrained acting out of our sinful desires works out. It leads to the degrading, the dishonoring, the humiliating, the mistreating, the devaluing of ourself and one another. What people call freedom to do what they please leads to bondage. C.S. Lewis observed that people enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. Twenty-six it says, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. God gave them over. Here's that phrase again. God letting us do what we want is an expression of his wrath rather than his approval. He's letting our sin create its own punishment. Now, these verses, 26 and 27, are currently some of the most controversial verses in the Bible since they are in direct conflict with the prevailing thinking of our current culture. Some have attempted to remove that difficulty that these verses create by saying that what is being referred to is a promiscuous and abusive homosexual sex and not long-term committed homosexual relationships. Now, that is certainly a convenient way to interpret and explain these verses. The plain meaning of the passage, though, doesn't distinguish one kind of homosexual act from another. Remember who Paul is writing to. People in the church in Rome, a city and culture where homosexuality was commonly practiced especially among the upper class of society at this time. What Paul is saying here would not have been easy for the people of that day in that city and culture to hear. And Paul, he doesn't try to soften it by suggesting that some kinds of homosexual behavior 
were acceptable and others not. As unpopular and crosswise with the prevailing beliefs of our culture as it is, the Bible's teaching about homosexual behavior is that it is a sin. Any sex, any sex outside of a heterosexual marriage relationship is a sin. Hooking up with your boyfriend or girlfriend is a sin. Just as much as what we're talking about here. Paul doesn't bring this particular behavior up because it is the worst of sins. It isn't. In the next verses, he's going to list a number of other sins too, all of which are evidence of the moral bankruptcy of humanity and our need for God to save us. Paul uses sexual desires as the example here to make his point because he knows how powerful these exam- these how powerful these desires are and commonly experienced by all of us. This is something virtually everyone is able to relate to and feel the sting of the truth of our struggles as human beings. Now quickly before moving on with our study of the text, some may be asking, well, how does the gay person live under the teaching of the Bible? The same way all of us do. We are all people. All of us are people struggling with the same kinds of things. We are all in this thing together, you guys. All of us. And we may not understand all of the reasons for why the Lord tells us to behave certain ways. But we choose to trust Him over ourselves. We choose to restrain our desires and obey Him. We live a life of obedience that comes from faith, as we saw in Romans 1.5. Trusting Him that even though it can be excruciatingly hard sometimes, His way is the best way, and it brings reward in the end. We live a life of obedience that comes from faith, trusting Him. Verse 28, he says, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have No understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. 
again, God gave them over. This is the third time Paul says this, driving home the point again. We should not understand God's apparent tolerance for our behaviors to be his approval. It is very much not. As we read this list, none of us are left untouched. We have all been shot through. And if you don't feel shot through, you are in bigger trouble than anyone. Because your pride has blinded you. We are all nailed to the wall. We're all undone by this. We're all lost, sinful, condemned, in desperate need of God's mercy. The fact that our culture has normalized many of these behaviors, even celebrating those who do these things in some cases, it only serves to prove Paul's final condemning remark in verse 32, that they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, to prevent anyone from feeling morally superior, Paul confronts and he reminds us in the next verses that we are all condemned. All of us are condemned and in need of God's saving mercy. In Paul's day, Jewish people were the ones who might feel superior to the Gentile people, the non-Jews, at this point. Since many of the sins that Paul has mentioned here were things much more common in Gentile culture of that day than Jewish culture. Now, in our own day, church-going people are the ones who might feel morally superior. But in these next verses, Paul says, not so fast. No one is off the hook here. We are all on the wrong side of God's righteousness. So in Romans 2, verse 1, he says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Paul refers to you here without making identification of who you is. But when we get further into the chapter, down at verse 17, we see that he is referring to the Jewish believers in large part in the church at Rome. Those who have been blessed with and brought up with the moral compass of the Scriptures. Paul tells them that they have no place to feel morally superior to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, people who didn't have the benefit of God's written word to guide them. They are guilty of the same kinds of things themselves. And it might even be argued that they are more guilty because they should have known better. 
And for us in our own day, some of us may have had the benefit of being raised in a Christian home, for example, with the values taught in the Bible. That doesn't make us superior to those who have not had that same benefit. We are guilty of the same kinds of things. He says, at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. It's okay to judge the rightness and wrongness of things. That's not what he's talking about here. Paul is confronting the self-righteousness that human beings commonly have about themselves. We're blind to the very same shortcomings in ourselves that we are quickly to condemn in others. And if, and if we do see the issue in our own life, we're, we're quick to find justification and excuse for it in us. But not in them. <laughs> I have reason for why I'm doing that. When we stand in judgment of another, we're condemning ourselves. At the same time, because we're guilty too. This phenomenon that we're all familiar with of canceling people that goes on in our society, it is a graceless judging and condemning of people. There's no redemption, no forgiveness. It may correctly render a verdict of guilty against someone, but then what? The person is condemned with no hope of redemption. It is wicked. And it is the very opposite of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God does not judge and condemn us like that. Look at the next verse, verse 4. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? There's no question that God's judgment is based on truth. It is right and it is just. We are guilty, all of us. But it doesn't stop there with God, He doesn't simply find us guilty. He steps into our brokenness and he offers to help us. He extends his grace to us. His son Jesus Christ entered into our world and he lived among us and he died for us and he was raised back to life for us and now he intercedes for us before the Father. And he's prepared a place for us so that we can be with him forever. He's not just judged and condemned us. He saved us from that very judgment and condemnation. God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance, it says here in verse 4. God's desire is for us to turn away from our sin and live rightly according to his word. But he doesn't just tell us to stop sinning and start doing right. He offers us a way out of the pit that we've thrown ourselves into. Titus 2.11 
For the grace of God has, pre has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is right. If we skip down to Titus 3.3, 3, it says at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. See, that's that list that we just read in Romans 1, isn't it? But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace. And I thank you, Lord, that we don't have to pretend to be what we are not. That we are broken, lost, sinful, ornery people. And you have rescued us, Lord, through your Son, Jesus Christ, from ourselves. Help us, Lord, to continue to embrace more and more your ways and to leave our own ways behind us. Fill us with your peace and your joy, Lord, knowing that you have saved us not because of righteous things we have done, but because of your mercy and your grace in Jesus Christ. And Lord, may we extend that mercy and grace to each other and to everyone. We are not the judges. We are the recipients of your mercy. May we never forget that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.